Welcome to the Focus on Customer Service podcast, presented by Social Media Today, where we talk to brands you know and love who are laser-focused on using social media to deliver amazing customer experiences. And now, here are your co-hosts, Dan Gingas and Dan Moriarty. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the 25th episode of the Focus on Customer Service podcast. That's right, we have hit our silver anniversary. Wow. As always, I'm Dan Gingas, joined by Dan Moriarty. How are you today, sir? Good, mate. How you doing? I am doing fantastic. And to celebrate our silver anniversary, we have an absolutely awesome guest today on the show. And we're recording live on Blab, so we have an audience and we'll uh, enjoy getting their questions as well. But I want to introduce one of my favorite authors and all-around people, Jay Bear. He is a marketing strategist, a speaker, an author. He's the president of Convince and Convert, whose blog was named the number one content marketing resource in the world. And he is the host of the Social Pros podcast, which was named the number one marketing podcast. Jay Bear, welcome to the show. Dan and Dan, I am so delighted to be here. I love your show. Love the topic. I'm honored to be here, especially live on Blab with uh, the Blabites who have uh, come to uh, hang out. Gingus, you've been on the Social Pros podcast. You're amazing. We're getting Moriarty on the Social Pros podcast too pretty soon. So fantastic to be here. Thanks, guys. Awesome. We're very excited to have you. Thank you to everybody tuning in on Blab. Please feel free to uh, tell Little Bird and share. And if you have questions for Jay, uh, we're going to talk to him for a little bit, but we will open up a seat later on for you to ask your question live. Or you can also ask it in the comment section with a slash Q, and we'll be happy to uh, get to it. So Jay, first of all, I have to show you that this is your first book. And this is one of my favorite books of all time. I read it uh, at my last job. And when I just started a recent job, I read it again. And it is uh, is definitely uh, held its own as a, as a valuable resource. Thanks. And that book was all about content marketing. And your new book, which I don't have yet, but here I have a picture. But I do, but I do. Look at that. I just Excellent. got out of the box like an hour ago. Like it still has that hot, fresh, ooh, it's a very mm. inky, hot, fresh, inky smell. book smell right there. I can smell it through the computer. So this book called Hug Your Haters, is not really at all about content marketing. It's about customer service. So I kind of wanted to start by asking you about that shift and uh, and how do you go from utility to hug your haters? Well, I'll tell you what happened in practice, Dan, is that, as you know, Convince and Convert does a lot of strategy advice and counsel for, for big brands in the areas of, of digital and content and social. And what we were finding over and over is we were being asked to to weigh in on social care and, and how do we align proactive marketing and reactive social, et cetera. And, and we started digging deeper in our consulting practice and found that, geez, you know, it's 2016. And while everybody assumes that everybody's good at customer service, turns out they're not. In fact, I'm sure you guys have talked about many times the the Forrester stat that says that 80% of businesses say that they deliver superior customer service, but only 8% of their customers agree. And I thought, well, gee, that seems like a problem. And I was under the impression that both in marketing and in care, that the key piece of that equation, the key success component was speed. And so I was originally going to write a book called 43 Minutes because my hypothesis is that 43 minutes is sort of the magic response number. And it was going to be a book that straddled the line between marketing and customer service and talked more about being fast everywhere, being fast proactively and being fast reactively. But I said, you know, I don't want to just write another book that says, I have an idea. It's a good idea. Trust me. 
And so I thought I should probably make sure that what I'm going to tell people is actually true. So I partnered with Tom Webster and the guys at Edison Research, a very well-respected consumer attitude collection firm. And we did a massive landmark study of complaint, who complains and where they complain and why they complain and how. And what I discovered is that while speed is important and is getting more important, it is not the most important thing. What is more important is actually showing up. That the biggest problem and the reason why so many people hate customer service is that one third of all customer complaints are never answered. And the majority of those customer complaints that are not answered, in fact, the overwhelming majority are, in fact, online, social media, discussion boards and forums, review sites. We treat customers so differently online where customer service is, in fact, public compared to how we treat customers offline that we probably have it upside down. And so I said, okay, this book is not about speed. This book is about response. This book is about being everywhere. This book is about hugging your haters. And that's the book I wrote. So two questions on that, Jay. First one, 43 minutes. Where did that idea come from? That was my hypothesis of sort of what the magic tipping point was for being fast enough versus not fast enough. That was just a wild ass. That was sort of like the placeholder title. It might've been once the research came back 57 minutes or 114 minutes or 11 minutes, it turned out to be no minutes um, because it's not necessarily about speed. Although again, it is, as you guys well know, it kind of is, but that's not the first issue. The first issue is showing up. Yeah. And then so the, the follow-up to that is, at what point did you decide to change it from 43 minutes to hug your haters? And what was the, the, the piece of research that tipped you over the edge there? Well, when I got the research back from Edison and I went through the findings and went through the cross tabs and everything and the screens with Tom Webster, we had a Skype call. We said, this data does not support the thesis, the original thesis. There's a totally different thesis here, which is that people are sick of being ignored. The thesis is that the customer is not always right, but the customer always deserves to be heard. Write that down, Ben. So that, <laughs> <laughs> so that gets to one of uh, the core tenets of your book, which you come back to a few times, which I'll let you say. But the, the takeaway is that when you don't respond, that actually is a response. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. So so we say that haters are not your problem, ignoring them is. And a lack of response is, in fact, a response. A lack of response is a response that says, we don't care about you enough to even spend any time at this whatsoever. We are okay that you are a voice in the wilderness. And in fact, as you guys well know, and, and all the listeners know, it's not accidental. Almost never is it accidental that customer complaints are not answered in social media and beyond. It is a willful. It is a purposeful planned strategy that says we are not going to spend resources on this. We're going to spend resources somewhere else. And we don't care if those customers are not answered. And that I think is a policy that has to change because consumers will simply demand that it changes. And they are. So why do so many companies, according to the research and according to other pieces of research that we've seen, why are so, so many companies so slow to figure this out? Well, you, you have certainly seen it. Both of you have seen it from the inside out. There's several reasons that I that I talk about in the book. Some of it is that it does require resources. I mean, the the hug your haters formula, right? The advice, the core advice is that you answer every customer complaint in every channel every time. Every complaint, every channel, every time. And that ain't easy, right? That requires a level of vigilance and spread that most companies simply are not prepared to do, either because they think they don't have the resources, they choose to not deploy the resources, they are frightened of customers online because they think customers online lie or try to extort them, 
or they don't recognize this shift between offline and online uh, customer care that's happening in real time. And in many cases, it's a culture, right? It's just we say we care about customer service, but we don't really care. Right. It's a culture that falls short of genuine hospitality. And, and from a financial perspective, there are a few industries, not many, but there are a few industries where it actually doesn't pencil out. Right. Where, where it's actually so inexpensive to replace customers that leave that it doesn't actually make sense to go out of your way to keep them. But that is an excuse that is applicable to a very small number of businesses. We should all have that problem. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're talking about fast food maybe telco, and that's pretty much the end of the list. And that was actually the route I was going to go down is, is getting from you what those products or brands are or industries are that you think shouldn't be responding to everything because of the financials. Is it as simple as a place where like commodities, where the margins are just so thin, or is, is it slightly more nuanced than that? I don't know that it's so much margin. I think it's a forced buy. It's the industries where, look, your penetration is 100%. Right. How many people don't have some sort of data subscription on their phone at this point? Right. So, you know, it, it's circumstances like that where where we know what the options are at Sprint, T-Mobile, AT&T, Verizon. And if Verizon angers us, we're going to AT&T and vice versa. Yes, those guys do a lot of marketing. Yes, they put a lot of effort into care, but they realize that, you know, they can fill the leaky bucket, to use the old metaphor, very, very easily. But here's the thing that, that I think skews that logic a little bit, Dan. It makes more sense to posit that argument to say, look, we can afford customer churn because we can replace customers at X dollars, that makes more sense when you are mostly using legacy channels to do care, when you're using expensive phone and modestly expensive email. If you actually make the shift to social care, which is manifestly less expensive on a per customer basis, then the entire financial formula changes. What might be too expensive to do via phone and email becomes much more doable if you actually proactively shift customers to social instead of fighting against it tooth and nail like so many brands are. And is that solely I think, the cost savings of serving over social? Or is that is that looking at the fact that if you're in the social space doing it, you've almost got the added benefit of the marketing side as well, the... Of course, it's a combination. I mean, customer service is the new market. I'm not suggesting that the financial benefit is by any means the primary benefit, but I do I do address it in the book because people use that argument all the time. But no, of course, I mean, the reason that you should be more active in, in social media discussion boards and forums, it's actually two reasons. One, customer service is a spectator sport in those venues. And, and so, yeah, you want to make the original hater happy, but more importantly, are the tens or hundreds or thousands of tens of thousands of people who are looking on either in real time or as is even more the case, someone leaves you a negative review two years ago and that review remains unanswered and it continues to leach brand reputation into the infinite future. So that is a, a huge reason. The other reason is based on the research that we did for the book, which says that answering just one customer complaint in social media, review sites, or discussion boards and forums can increase customer advocacy by up to 25%. So there is a meaningful and important difference in customer loyalty and customer advocacy when you answer complaints versus not answering complaints. So Jay, one of uh, our audience members mentioned a fast food restaurant by name. And uh, I found also that fast food restaurants tend to not be very good at this. Do you think that pure volume is an excuse that that if you've just got so many tens of millions of customers and therefore 
you know, hundreds of thousands of inquiries every day that you just have to pick and choose and you, you simply can't respond to everyone? It is an excuse that is understandable. When you divorce yourself from the customer equation, you can say, hey, there's no way we can possibly respond to 10,000 people a day or more. But you absolutely could. You absolutely could. It just requires wanting to and putting the requisite resources against it. So what my answer would be, both as an author and as a consultant is, well, what if you tested it for 30 days or two weeks and then did a pre and post survey of those customers and said, okay, what if we actually put the time and resources against it necessary to answer everybody? What would be the financial impact of that versus what we're doing now, which is essentially playing roulette with people's emotions? Yeah, I think that's right. That's great. Now, in your book, you talk about two different kinds of haters, the onstage haters and the offstage haters. Yeah. Can you share with the audience the difference on those? Absolutely. Incredibly important. And in fact, for, for people watching on Blab, every copy of the book actually includes in it, bound in the book, uh, a poster, which is called The Hatrix. And The Hatrix is all the important data of the book and the analysis of offstage versus onstage haters. And so we found when we did the research that there's two main types, as you said, there's onstage and offstage. And the offstage haters are people who complain in the legacy channels, telephone and email. They're a little bit older, a little less tech savvy, a little less social media savvy. Onstage haters are people who complain in public. So social media, review sites, Yelp, TripAdvisor, whatever vertical industry sites are important in your industry, and then discussion boards and forums. The onstage haters are a little younger, a little more tech savvy, a little more social savvy, et cetera. But, but those demographic differences are not, they're not terribly significant. They, they're present, they, they show in the data, but it's not, it's not as if you can say people who complain on the phone are way older than people who complain in Facebook. That's not true. The big difference between onstage and offstage haters is in expectations. So if you complain offstage, phone and email, you expect and anticipate a reply. What you want is an answer. 90% of the time, when people complain in phone or email, they expect the business to get back to them. Okay, that's true in your experience, in your own work with your brands, both of you, and I'm sure it's true in your experience in your actual life. Conversely, for onstage haters, people who complain, social media, discussion boards, forums, review sites, they don't necessarily expect an answer. What they really want is an audience. What they want is the group empathy tsunami. What they want is all of their friends to comment on their Facebook post and say, oh, that totally sucks. I can't believe that happened to you. I'm so sorry. It's that, right? It's like, oh, that's too bad, too bad, too bad. They want this like groundswell of ennui. And about 47%, according to the research, 47% of the people who complain online like that expect a response. So this, guys, is the huge, colossal opportunity for all businesses, large, small, B2B, B2C, every combination you can imagine, is to hug those onstage haters because they don't expect it. They never see it coming. So they're just bitching about you on Facebook or Twitter or Yelp or whatever. They never even think you're going to see it because so many companies, frankly, ignore them. And then all of a sudden you come along and say, we heard you and we're sorry. And you know what happens? It, it blows their minds and it steals their hearts. It is a huge opportunity for every company. But that opportunity, I hope, will not last long because I hope everybody figures this out. 
So that's great stuff. And I want to get to something that you said, because it relates uh, very well to a question from the audience. So you mentioned onstage haters, and you mentioned both social media and forums. And the question is, is there a different culture in, say, Twitter versus forums where people expect the brand to respond? And do you run the risk of being a little creepy in a forum where maybe uh, they don't know that the brand is listening? I don't have the breakdown of Twitter in front of me, but I can tell you for social, which is Twitter, Facebook, G+, IG, etc., 42% of haters expect a reply. Discussion boards and forums is 47. So not a huge difference there. Okay. Interesting. Very good. And uh, we also have, uh, as long as we're on some questions, let's jump to another one from the audience, which is what are the biggest mental hurdles that leaders and budget owners must overcome in order to commit the resources necessary to do social customer care well? We have to read your book. (laughs) Well, yeah, that'd be great. And thanks for the question, Jeff. It's nice to see you here. I think the first hurdle isn't necessarily mental. I guess all hurdles are mental in this context, but but it's actually more mathematics. It's okay. Ultimately, somebody's going to have to say this is worth it, but everybody has to agree on how we're going to measure whether or not it's worth it, right? What What is your actual mathematical reality? Can you measure pre and post net promoter score? Can you measure pre and post lifetime value? Can you measure pre and post customer sat or or difficulty ranking or, you know, ease of getting customer answers. Like what, what is actually going to be the proof point that says, if we do this, if we do commit those resources, oh, this is actually paying off. I think the biggest challenge that customer service professionals have is not willingness, is not attitude, it's not even culture, is that they still are, in many cases, I'm not suggesting you guys, but in many cases are using metrics that were useful 20 years ago you know, handle time and, and, and overall, you know, customer served and things that really are, are immaterial now, we've got to do a better job at metrics because that's the only way you're going to prove the business case. And Joe, in your research, did you talk to any companies that had gone that far, like looking at pre and post NPS and connecting it back? Absolutely. To yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't say that a lot of companies are doing it, but what I, what's heartening to me is that a lot of the software companies that are powering both social care and in many cases, social plus traditional care and trying to merge them together, which is no easy task, as you know, a lot of those companies are starting to try and push that metrics topic because it, it, it benefits everybody in the long run. Mm-hmm. For sure. And sometimes it's just revenue, right? Sometimes, I mean, like one of my favorite case studies in the book is from KLM and you guys know their story. I mean, they're so remarkable in social media, customer service, KLM, Royal Dutch Airlines, Last year, they sold $25 million worth of airline tickets, essentially accidentally, right? It's a customer service team. They have no revenue goals. They have no revenue expectations in the organization. They sold $25 million just just by saying, oh, yeah, well, while I'm having this conversation with you, here's a link, right? So at some level, just having more customer exchanges, uh, you know, just mathematically gives you this huge opportunity to monetize in a very seamless you know, way that's very customer friendly, you just have to first say, well, yeah, we're going to just be in more places. We're just going to triple down on customer interactions. Now, that's not even talking about, we haven't even touched on the other huge part of this, which is every time you talk to an angry customer, it's free market research, right? The customer insights piece of this is almost as important, if not more important than the actual customer retention part of it. 
That's a great point. And that one gets missed quite a bit is that, you know, a lot of companies have come up with product ideas or product improvements or product fixes based on feedback that they hear in public channels. Any examples that you want to share from your book around there? I'll tell you one of my favorite, one of my favorite stories from the book is from La Pan Quotidienne. And they're a chain of about 220 bakers. Have you had Aaron Pepper on your show? No, we should. After I yeah, read your book, amazing. I wanted to. Yeah, she's awesome. You should definitely have her on the show. So Aaron is the director of customer experience for La Pan Quotidienne. They're based in Brussels, bakeries, cafes, some locations in the U.S., mostly in the Northeast. And I'm going to tell you three things about her uh, and their program, which blow me away. First thing, she was hired like two years ago. And she said, okay, here's my goal. My goal is to triple the number of complaints. Wait, what? I want to triple the number of complaints because every complaint tells us something. Guys, you know what is the most overrated thing in the world, both in business and in life? The most overrated thing is praise. Every time somebody says, Dan, you're so great at this. Dan, you're so great at that. Dan, you're so great at this. Dan, you're so great at that. It feels awesome, but it teaches you nothing. Praise teaches you nothing. You already know what you're good at. What actually makes you a better person and a better organization is criticism. And Erin understands that. So she goes out of her way to make sure that every time a customer is even modestly dissatisfied, they've got multiple options to express that dissatisfaction online and offline. And she has done that. She has tripled the number of complaints as customer satisfaction has actually gotten better. And that's no easy task. If you want to get fewer complaints in your business, it's super easy. Here's the secret. Stop listening for them. That's the secret. So that's the first thing I want to tell you about her. The second thing is they are really, really smart about listening to customer feedback and doing something about it. So she saw this pattern of customers complaining about lemonade and their lemonade is known to be quite good. And she's like, well, what's the deal? We're awesome at lemonade. I don't understand. Tracked it back, tracked it back, tracked it back and realized that there was one region that was using an old recipe and the chefs had messed it up and they were using a different version of the lemonade and was able to pick that out of the patterns, solve that problem, right? That's the kind of operational level fixes that this kind of listening can really help. And the third thing that's amazing about her is that she does completely the hug your haters approach as Genghis, you do. You're a star of the book. There's probably more words written about you and hug your haters than any other human being. I should have just made you a co-author. So she answers everybody. And when they do get negative reviews on, in, in her case, it would be like Yelp, TripAdvisor, Urban Spoon, those kind of restaurant sites. So she answers everybody back in public and says, hey, I'm terribly sorry. Great feedback. And tell the store manager, blah, 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 as you should. Then she waits a couple hours and, and then answers them in private through some sort of private messaging function. And she says something to this effect. You know, I've been thinking about your feedback and you are a particularly perceptive customer. You have a gift for this. You see things that other customers simply do not see. What I'd like to do with your permission, I'd like to send you two gift cards a month. And with each of those gift cards, I would like you to go to a different Lapan Quotidian location. And upon the conclusion of your visit, I'd like you to click this link and fill out this detailed survey of your experiences because you understand things that other people don't understand. You are the kind of person we need to be the best chain of bakeries and cafes in the world. Will you do that for me? She now has more than 150 of these secret shoppers doing that every month, like massively detailed survey work, total cost of that program, some gift cards. She turned hate into help. And I think that's pretty damn impressive. That's an awesome story. Another good tweet. to Everybody should well. steal that idea. Like, why doesn't everybody steal that? I'm like, oh, my God, like, that's the best idea ever. Everyone should do it. 
So Jay, I want to twist it a little bit, the idea of hugging your haters and talk about in your research, did you look at lovers at all? The example you gave of KLM, right? That doesn't, that, yes, that comes from engaging people that are angry, but it also comes from just talking to your customers and potential Answering customers. Answering questions, sure. Yeah. Did you look outside of complaints and any interesting research there? We focus on complaints, of course, because that was the nature of the research and the thesis. But the secondary component of the research absolutely found a similar pattern, Dan, that, that if you address customers in any capacity, positive, negative, neutral, you're going to see a lift in customer advocacy. Now, certainly we all know the research that says if a customer has a problem and you solve the problem, they become more loyal to the brand than if there was never a problem at all, which makes me think, how could we possibly create a bunch of artificial problems that we know we can solve? Don't try that at home, but that makes me think about that, right? So I'm like, hmm, what could we invent? So <laughs> exactly. But but there's no question that even um, when a customer says, we love you, if the brand answers back and says, we love you too, that also has that sort of loyalty dopamine effect. It's not quite as large as it is in a negative scenario because customers don't expect it as much, but it is present, no doubt. But if somebody says, look, we have finite resources, should we spend those resources answering complaints or high-fiving people who love us? I would say do complaints first. I definitely think that's the right order, although I do continue to be surprised at how few brands interact with people that are giving them compliments, because especially on stage, right? So somebody's taking the time to go onto a social channel and praise a brand. And let's face it, a lot of brands don't hear that every day, because it, it, the reason why your book exists, there's a lot of people out there that are complaining. So I personally think that it's important that brands spend some time engaging with the people that are happy with them as well. I understand what you're saying, that it, that it may not have the same loyalty effect, but it does. It, you can make someone's day just by responding, right? Mm -hmm. No doubt. No, no question. And then look, I have a real struggle with that myself. I get, and I'm not trying to, to say this in like a, you know, kind of way that's distasteful, but uh, a lot of people say on a daily basis, I liked this podcast or I like this blog or I like this conference or whatever. And that's amazing. It's so gratifying. I really do try to answer everybody in a live event situation. So if I get off stage and there's lots of tweets, I'll try to answer every one of those people, but I don't answer every single person every day in social media who says, I really like that blog post, et cetera. I probably should, but, but I just don't. I don't put those kind of resources against it. I'd love to hear from you, Dan. How would you decide or how did you decide either at your previous employer or now? Like if you're going to say, look, okay, we're going to love up some people who love us up. How do you do that? Is it just by when you get a, get around to it? Is it by influence? Is it is it by intensity of their comment? Like what's the decision tree there? Because that's I what I struggle with. Back, yeah, it gets back to the quantity question we were talking about before, right? I mean, McDonald's is not going to be able to respond to everybody. Well, let's be careful. Let's, let's not McDonald's. say that because they could. They choose not to. Uh, okay, fair enough. I never, uh, I, I, so, really, I really try to never say that, that they can't because they could. They just choose not to. That's true. That's true. You know, our approach was that we did respond to everybody every time, as you say, both complainers and, and people that were happy. That's why you're in the book, Dan. <laughs> There's another shout out for the Hug Your Haters book out in bookstores, by the way, and uh, so, local and no, online March 1st. Yeah, soon. March, 1st. March 1st, right? 
Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, we took the time to respond to people who were complimentary. And I do think there is a surprise and delight there. I would guess that there's less of an expectation of a response when it's a compliment. And so when you can engage, you know, that sort of makes them doubly happy. So I want to bounce back for a second because you earlier on, you talked about the original title of your book was 43 minutes and then you went to hug your haters. But let's circle back to response time. So it might not be the most important thing, but how important is it? It's important. No question. 40% of the people who complain in social media and expect a response, and again, half don't expect a response, but of those who expect a response at all, 40% expect a response within an hour. According to Sprout Social, the average response time of brands in social when they respond, which again is by no means every time, is five hours. So a good portion of people want an hour, you take five We've got a gap there that is not terribly customer friendly. I think we all know that that's not new information that brands have to get faster at social. But here's something that I think is really fascinating, guys. And I'd love to get your take on this. One of the things that I didn't report on in the book, it wasn't my research, but I pulled it into the book, was this data point that says that today it takes an average of 44 hours for a business to respond to an email, which just sort of out of context seems like a long time. To me, it's almost two days, and two days is a long time in this world now. But what is even more interesting, I think, is that's eight hours slower than it was a year ago. So it was 36 hours on average, and now it's 44. At the same time, you see more and more brands putting some effort, not a ton, some effort into social care. My hypothesis, which is nothing more than a wild-ass guess, is that what you're seeing is brands diverting some email resources to social and it's bringing the email response time higher uh, because they're not adding bodies or just shifting responsibilities. Do you guys think that might be true? I can answer first. I do think that is probably true. I also think that the expectations on the email channel are wildly different and it's easier, frankly, to manage those expectations. So all of us are used to seeing, we'll get back to you in 24 to 48 hours. And while we may think that sounds like a long time, it kind of is the expectation on email. If you need an instant response, email's not the channel you're going to go to, whereas a Twitter tends to be a channel that you do run to if you want an instant response. So I would guess that you're right, that resources are being moved. Certainly in my experience, you know, cross-training agents to handle multiple digital channels is a good strategy. And so you know, if you're a company that doesn't have, say, the volume to have people full-time on social all day long, answering email might be a thing that they do on the side, but it does come in, it's sort of yeah. secondary on the priority list. Yeah. What about you, Dan? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, we see a very different type of conversation over email. It's, it's There's not a ton of backwards and forwards, and it's normally quite transactional. Even if it's not a booking, it's something happened, I need this other thing to happen as a result. And so we have, we've been up against the 24 hour response time and we haven't had any real complaints about that. Whereas we've seen, I mean, Twitter, Facebook, Messenger, people's expectations are different, but we, we do have people that, especially as a brand that's set the bar quite high with regards to response time, we get people following up with us on it. If we haven't responded in an hour on Twitter, we'll have people giving us a prod like, yeah. hey, what's wrong? Like, Why aren't you guys responding? And yes, I mean, and no, normally it's all right. It's just obviously in times of volume spikes for, for various reasons, that both email and, and social times can get away from us quite quickly. No, no doubt. And, and when that happens, I mean, what we see both anecdotally in the book and through some of the research from Tom Webster and I and, and also other uh, research companies is that you've got this dynamic now where people call or email and they yeah. are either not happy with the response time or not happy with the answer. 
And, yeah. and so then they take it to social. They like raise the stakes and take something that was private and turn it public. Sometimes it's not happy with the response time, right? You, you send an email, almost two days go by. You're like, hmm, I think maybe they're blowing me off. Now mm. I'm twice pissed, right? I'm, I'm upset about whatever I was upset about to begin with. And now I'm upset about because it took you two days to get back to me on email and you didn't get back to me. So now, now I'm going to punish you, right? Now I'm going to make it public. That happens with some degree of regularity. And in other cases, it's just that they didn't like what they heard, right? They talked to an agent on the phone. They didn't like yeah. what they were told. And so now they're going to take it to Twitter because they think <clears throat> they're going to be able to get a better resolution in that channel. And what's amazing to me, though, and I know you guys have very firsthand knowledge of this, in some cases they do. It's happened to me personally. I've, I've gotten one story from email and a totally different story on Twitter because on email, I'm a guy with an email address. On Twitter, I've got a bunch of followers. And, yeah. and that, I think, I understand, of course, how that happens. But as a company, and certainly when we advise our clients, it's really dangerous to set a precedent that social care produces better outcomes than non-social care because you're just training your customers to go that way. And if that's what you want, great. If that's not what you want, that's really dangerous. And very dangerous. I, I have a double down on that. Sorry, Dan. Just say, agree completely. I think exactly the same thing about haters versus lovers. And one of the things we've been quick to do at Hyatt is not overtly reward the haters over the lovers. When we get those guys celebrating yeah. their 100th milestones, when we get those guys sharing their diamond membership cards for the year, those get bigger course corrections, if you will, than the haters. Because we want to try and get that balance of not just encouraging people to complain to try and get that, that extra level of brand love. So it's, and say so it's platform and like behavior agnostic. Yeah, well, I think really this smart. is a really, this comes down to also, it's a training issue, right? Is that if we're training the agents differently in different channels or we're empowering them differently, then they're going to come up with different answers. And what we really want is that you should be able to get the same answer across channels. But I also think it comes down to a trend. And Jane, you and I have talked about this before, this idea of whether social media is a channel of last resort or first resort for customers. And I think that when it started, it was absolutely a channel of last resort because people weren't getting and still aren't getting, frankly, the service that they want on the phone, long hold times, emails not being responded to, et cetera. But as people have experienced the speed of service on social media and generally the speed of resolution, I do think that there's a shift happening where it is becoming a channel of first resort particularly for a millennial crowd, but others as well, who just find it a more enjoyable way to interact with a company because they don't want to talk to someone on the phone and they don't want to type out an email. Yeah. I mean, I talked about it in the book and I talked about a lot on stage too, that, I mean, there's no doubt that the shift from customers preferring offstage channels to customers preferring onstage channels, whether it's first, middle or last touch is real. Like it, there's no doubt. I mean, there's, there's no question about it. It is way easier for customers in anything other than a very detailed scenario to contact a brand using an app on their smartphone, whether that app is Facebook, Twitter, natural, Facebook Messenger, WhatsApp, WeChat. I mean, it, you know, we're just touching the, just scratching the surface of where we're going here. And, and so one of the reasons why I think this book is important right now is that so few brands are prepared for that. Right? They're still thinking about their call center. And guess what? Pretty soon, nobody's going to want to call. And if you don't have a WhatsApp center, you're going to have a real problem. And I think about, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate in some ways and unfortunate in others and that I have two teenagers at home. And I have two high school students who, who are living right here. 
And, you know, they have smartphones, of course, but that's the worst named product in the history of products for them because of all the functions of that device. The one function they have literally no interest in is the telephone. I mean, none. You can't get my son to talk on the phone at bayonet point. He has no interest at all. Right. And, you know, they'll text constantly. They Snapchat constantly. They tweet constantly. Uh, but but the phone and, and frankly, to some degree, email as well is like completely not even in their mindset. And so I refuse to believe that that, you know, in four years or whatever, when my daughter's out of college, five years, you know, she's going to be in her first cubicle and is going to say, you know, I've uh, I've been missing out on the joys of telephonic communication. I really want to embrace this now that I'm 22. Like it's not going to happen, folks. So regardless of, of what you feel about social care, you have to understand that your customers are going to prefer to contact you in some other ways and some other mechanisms. And I think fundamentally, businesses have to stop saying that we're going to interact with customers in the ground that is the business's convenience and start to interact with customers in the ground that the customers want. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's music to our ears for sure. And I was actually going to drill into your comments around like Messenger, WhatsApp, WeChat, because it's almost an, an extra level. You've kind of gone from you know phone and, and direct to brand. You've gone kind of public, and we're now going potentially if, if the trends carry the way yeah. we're kind of seeing at the moment back to private, but through these traditionally public platforms. Any thoughts on kind of what that's going to do to brands? Like expectations. It's so crazy, right, Dan? I, I'm so glad you mentioned it. It's, I was just pondering that today a little bit more. And it's like one of those things I'm like, man, I wish I could have held off the final draft of this book for a couple more months because there's been some really interesting things even since I finished, since I locked down the copy in terms of Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and, and Care. I mean, I'm really glad the book touches on those themes because no books really have yet in any large measure, but still it's moving so fast. But you're exactly right. It's so fascinating, right? That we started with this with this private customer service and then went public customer service. And now we're talking about private again, using public mechanisms. And I think that's great from a customer convenience standpoint. Like if your customer has Facebook Messenger installed and that's how they want to interact or the brand wants to take something that was public and answer in private with Messenger, that's fine. But I'm not certain that that's to the brand's advantage because, Dan, one of my favorite sentences in the whole book, Gingus, is, is when you said, and I'll, I'm going to paraphrase here, if you're really good at customer service, why would you not want everybody to see that? And it is so smart and nobody ever thinks that way. And that's how I look at, at, at this transition, Moriarty, is that, look, if you're really good at customer service, why would you as a brand want to hide that in a private messaging app like WhatsApp and WeChat and Facebook Messenger? Why wouldn't you want to answer everybody on the wall in public? Why wouldn't you want to shout it from the rooftops? Look how awesome we are. Look how much better we are than our competition. It seems to me that from a brand perspective, if more and more customer service goes back into the private, it ruins the differentiation opportunity. And, and that, I think, is maybe not the best thing for companies. Yeah. Well, actually, we had uh, in our last episode, we had David on from Iographer. He's the CEO. And they're starting to do customer service in Snapchat. And he told a really interesting, interesting story of a guy that had plugged in his equipment wrong. And so the, the cords were reversed. And he would have not been able to figure that out had he not been watching the guy's snap and, and him showing him the picture of the device, right? And so that that was really an interesting idea. And, and yeah. But then I started thinking, like, the problem is, is that Snapchat is not recorded. There's no way that we can connect it to our CRM systems and do the other things that we yeah. as customer service people are used to. 
And also you get to the question of, well, if this guy plugged in the plugs wrong, maybe somebody else would do that. So how do we take that video and use it so that other people Labeled don't make the same mistake? Better. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think this is very fascinating. We also got a question in the audience about uh, about using video, which I do think is a really interesting play for service. So what I'm going to sort of tee this to is is kind of one last question that we have. And then I, we want to open it up to the audience as well, which is and you talk a little bit about this at the end of the book is where is this customer service journey going? What should we expect in the next couple of years in terms of where this evolves? Well, I don't think it's so much about what channels, but I think fundamentally every business is going to have to be present in a lot more channels than they're present in today. And so that has a lot of implications for resourcing. It has a lot of implications for CRM and in long-term tracking. And I think it has a lot of implications for overall customer service metrics, as we talked about a moment ago. But I think fundamentally, the bigger trend here is, is the customer experience trend. You know, we talk so much about delivering a great customer experience, but we never really talk about what that means. To me, a great customer experience is, is when a company does something that exceeds customers' baseline expectations. It means that you are blank, you're, you're more blank than somebody thought. And it could be more friendly, it could be more polite, more affordable, more fast, whatever. But businesses have this enormous opportunity right now to be more responsive than their competition. And in so doing, deliver the great customer experience that we all know we need to do and that customers demand. I do believe that customer experience is the new marketing and, and that customer service is the one thing that that is yours and yours alone. Look, your competition can steal everything from you, right? They can steal your pricing. They can you know mimic your products. They can steal your best customers. They can steal your best employees. They can steal your website copy. They can they can copy your trade show booth. You know, your competition can and will eventually steal everything from you. But the one thing they can never take from you, the one thing that is yours and yours alone, is if you genuinely and truly care more about your customers than they do. That is your differentiator. That is your competitive advantage. The companies that truly hug their haters, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because they believe in the primacy of the customer, will succeed disproportionate to their competition. I really believe that. At least I hope it's true. That's awesome. Fantastic. Agree with every single word. We are talking with the incomparable Jay Bear, author, speaker, president of Convince and Convert. Uh, his new book, Hug Your Haters, is out in bookstores everywhere March 1st. And please pick up a copy or visit HugYourHaters.com. We saw in the comments that there is still some ability to pre-order and receive some special gifts. Including so, socks. These socks right here, if you're on Blab, the I Love Haters socks you get if you buy uh, seven copies, I think. So these are pretty fantastic. I Love Hater socks. Those are awesome. One so we're going to open this up. But Go ahead, Dan. One pair of socks for seven books or one, one pair sock? of socks? One pair of socks for seven books. But for Moriarty, I'll give you two pairs of socks. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to open up the seats and if you have a question uh, we'd love for you to pop on and ask it and look at that just like that we have our old friend chris strubb hello chris what's going on guys hi jay good to see you oh, chris how you doing awesome man i wanted to say thanks so much to uh, you guys for having me on and uh just to anyone who's listening on itunes you guys are really missing out on the live experience you should definitely join these guys live on blab it's really so cool just to be part of this experience as well. So I wanted to go back to something you guys were touching on before, which you were talking about onstage haters and how there's a huge opportunity to address them. And it sounds like you were describing it as 
very high reward that companies should jump in and, you know, try and engage as much as possible. But I have to think that it's also high risk, you know, that there are a lot of things out there that if you do step, you know, dip your toe into a certain complaint, you know, where someone is totally determined just to bury you. And really, there's no way to win that argument. Once you fall down that rabbit hole and you start engaging, you might fall into trouble and really do a lot more damage where, you know, it can get out very publicly very quickly. So I'm curious how you would decide, Jay, you know, where, maybe what platforms you would want to get involved in versus not get involved in and how you would decide on a case-by-case basis who you would engage with and who you wouldn't. And uh, thanks so much for taking my question. It's great to see you guys. Thanks, Chris. Great question. Uh, I would engage with everybody. I mean, the Hug Your Haters formula is to answer every complaint in every channel, every time, even in the places that you know uh, have a higher than average likelihood of being filled with people who are perhaps a little bit unhinged. But I don't think you can pick and choose who to answer. I don't think you should because who's to say you're going to pick and choose correctly? In fact, there's lots of case studies and and comments in the book about that, that what you should do is if you answer everybody, if you answer everybody who's unhappy, you never have to pick and choose. It's like the old saw. I think Mark Twain said this, something like, or maybe it was Wilford Brimley or one of those guys. It was like, if you never lie, you never have to remember kind of your story, right? And I think that's kind of the same idea here. So I believe you should answer everybody. But Chris, here is, I'm so glad you mentioned this because this goes right to the heart of my favorite tactical step in the book. And we didn't even talk about this, but there's kind of full processes of how to do things in here. My favorite one that people ask about the most is Jay Bear's rule of reply only twice. And Jay Bear's rule of reply only twice says that you never, ever, 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 ever reply to a customer online on stage more than twice in any context, positive or negative, because it is either a waste of time and or a chance for you to get sucked into a vortex of negativity. So if somebody says, we love you, you can answer back, we love you. And if they say, no, we really love you, you can answer back a second time, no, we really love you or whatever your circumstances are. But if they come back a third time and say, no, we really, really, really love you, just walk away because you're wasting time. The more likely scenario, of course, is that it's negative. Somebody has says, we hate you. And you answer back, we're really sorry. And they say, no, we really hate you. And you say, well, there must be something kind of significant here. Could you maybe call us or email us? We'll talk about this in a more nuanced capacity. And then they answer back a third time. I don't want to call you. You guys are the worst. At that point, you just walk away. You just walk away. Because at this point, you've given this person not just one, but two opportunities to contact you. You've given them two remediation steps. You've shown that you care. You've shown that you listen. You've shown what your values are. You've shown what your culture is. And not only have you shown it to that person, but more importantly, you've shown it to all the people who are looking on, all the spectators on the sidelines. And that's true whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, Snapchat, Yelp, TripAdvisor, discussion boards, forums, every single place online. You never, ever, 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 ever answer more than twice because no good will come of it. All right. Dan, what do you think of that? I was just going to ask Jay how he really feels about it. <laughs> I have lived this principle. I have mm. I've personally tested this many times. And I, I assume, uh, I, I think this is, this is stating the obvious, but if, if it's a progressing conversation, if you are making progress, that two response limit doesn't apply. It's if you are treading the same ground, right? Yeah. Although typically, I think if it's a progressing conversation, it requires that kind of progression. If it starts off in an onstage channel, you're typically better switching channels at that juncture anyway. In, in most cases, time. right? You're better taking it offline. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. So I was going to ask how that mentally makes the leap, like a messenger or a WhatsApp type format. 
but then obviously you don't get the same you don't get the same hate when there's no audience um, right that's the no ironic else, thing right yeah yeah well no one else is in the open seat i'd be interested in hearing one of the things dan and i are kind of keeping an eye on with a lot of interest is facebook and twitter both starting to think about customer service and, and you know historically obviously facebook and twitter have, they've, they've enabled it but they really haven't done anything to help yeah. now suddenly you have facebook releasing messenger saying whatsapp's opening for business twitter have a five or six person team um they've been said it's one of their four core pillars for driving user growth how are you seeing that kind of uh, evolve and what do you think it'll imp- how do you think it'll impact brands and, and, and customers as well well i think twitter has has been a place where where brands have set up shop for customer service for a long time. I mean, you guys know as well as anybody in the world how common it is for brands to have, you know, at brand cares, at brand help, you know, separate customer service channels. You don't see that in Facebook hardly ever for a lot of reasons. And so Twitter has sort of accidentally been the the place that that people have gone for support. So for them to say, hey, let's just codify that now with some resources and some personnel, I don't think is a major implication for brands yet. Now, I think Twitter could very easily roll out sort of a, a customer service version of the app that could solve some of these CRM issues, could could really be useful if they choose to do so. There may not be enough money in it for them. They kind of have some other problems right now that they got to solve. So, but, but I think that would be really interesting and sort of the customer service version of Twitter for brands. And I'd love to see that uh, personally. Facebook, of course, is, is playing for keeps. I mean, as I said in the book and, and in a way that was not a joke, I think Facebook's goal is to be the new email. And so whether it's Messenger or WhatsApp or Facebook native or Instagram or whatever, they want to control eventually all conversations between businesses and customers, and they just may do it. And I think half an eye, so I agree with the email statement, and I think they've got half an eye on WeChat as well and how they've monetized yeah. over there through this. this the kind of combination of commerce and service is brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Yeah, for sure. Anyone else in the audience want to ask a question of Jay Bear? What an opportunity, an open seat sitting here to ask him any question that you want, hug your haters or even utility. We do have Mitch Jackson in the audience and and he is at work, so he can't jump on live. So I'll read this question. (laughs) All else being equal, can you reduce the number of haters by communicating with customers on the platforms they want to communicate on rather than the channels the company prefers to use? Clients interest first equals some level of satisfaction. I would say yes, you can, because it is definitely frustrating for customers when they want to interact with a brand in a particular modality and that modality is not supported. However, I do not think that mathematically that is a very large number of people today. It will become a larger number of people. I don't believe that today there's this whole group that says, you know what, I hate these guys more because they're not on WhatsApp. Right. I think that today is is in the very mild annoyance category, but that is changing very, very quickly. Get back to me in a year. And I think Mitch's statement holds more water then than it probably does as we're talking today. Looking out into the future, absolutely. You've got to be all the places that your customers want you to be. And that creates a lot of challenges. It creates resource challenges. It creates a lot of data unification challenges. And I talk about that in the book. It's not really a small business topic. That particular part is a big business topic, which is you're getting data from Facebook and you're getting data from email and you're getting data from Twitter and you're getting data from Yelp reviews or whatever. And there is no data store that lines that up in any sort of way that is intelligible at all, which creates huge problems for big companies. 
All right, we have Eileen Smith. Hi, hey, Eileen, how are you? Is. Oh my gosh, anytime somebody says my name right, I am like, woohoo. <laughs> hi, and hi, Jay, and Dan. Hello, how are you? Oh, Dan and Dan, okay. Makes it easy. Cool, that's funny. I had my boss was named Dan, and then one of my coworkers was Dan, and I was surrounded by Dan, so I still am. We're taking over the world. <laughs> I'm just curious, Jay, and I know it's probably too soon to tell, but how can live streaming be integrated into this mix of uh, hugging the haters? I mean, I know it's probably not time for a strategy with it yet, or what do yeah. you think? Uh, I actually talked awesome, about it a little awesome. bit in the book. Great question. I didn't get into it a ton because it is, you know, still pretty much out there on the fringe for these kind of scenarios. But I did talk about it, a couple paragraphs in there about it, at least about how, why couldn't you do customer service as a blab? Why couldn't you say, hey, all the customers who have this product who have been having trouble with figuring out which way to put the cables into the amplifier, we're just going to take care of this and a live stream, you can ask questions. I mean, if you've got the ability to, to drive people to the blab, that's the key, right? It's a two-step process. You'd have to know who the customers are and have a contact mechanism. You've got their email, or maybe you could DM them or something like that. But if you can get them to show up, I think this is an unbelievable customer service platform in certain circumstances, not for day-to-day -day service. You know, I have a problem and I need you to solve it on a one-to-one -one basis. That doesn't really work. But if you could get a bunch of customers together, the one thing I thought about is a recall situation. Like what if you have some sort of product recall or, hey, I have a Tesla now. And when they roll out the new software, everybody who has a Tesla has to figure out what the new software does. Blab would be a perfect way to talk through the release notes of the new software. So I think you're going to start seeing it. And maybe you guys have already seen some, Dan and Dan. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, well, I definitely agree with you about Blab, but I guess that was like a no-brainer to me. My question is more like Periscope and Facebook Live, where you have that yeah. one to many as opposed to with Blab, you can really... You know, you can ask yeah. questions. You can really find out people's I pain for, points. For, for traditional streaming, it's funny to say that, traditional streaming. <laughs> for traditional streaming, Facebook Live and Periscope. <laughs> I actually think the I think best... You mean, uh, Jay, I think you mean vintage streaming. Yeah, vintage <laughs> streaming, exactly, circa 2014. <laughs> I think the best scenario for those venues is in a crisis situation, actually, where you say, look we're getting hammered with tweets and Facebook posts and emails and calls and all these different channels because something has happened, the server's down, whatever scenario um, could happen. Let's just go live and try and tell everybody at once what's happening and spread that around all at one time to sort of reduce our volume. That I think is a really good use case for, for streaming. And I would absolutely, we actually did a crisis plan not long ago for a, a client and we actually had that in there. Like, look, if anything bad ever happens, we're gonna go on Periscope right now, Facebook Facebook Live when you get access to it. Oh, that's fantastic. an awesome answer. Well, we, we do have a strategy. I should have known. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thanks, Eileen, for the question. Really appreciate it. Thanks. It was nice yeah, meeting you guys today. Oh, Take care. Pleasure. And Jay, I don't know if you saw, but one of the airlines actually did that a few months ago. Did you, oh, did they? Did that. Oh, that's great. They had, um, no. they had their, their reservation system crashed, and so they had a day where they, they literally had no flights in the U.S. It was, it was horrific. Mm -hmm. And their head of communications went on Periscope and spoke live about what had happened and talked through it and explained it. And it was only a couple of minutes, but it got a ton of interaction and coverage as a way of trying to oh, get ahead of I guess it was United. Yeah, I didn't know that. I'll have to look for that one. That's awesome. I think it was United. I'm not 100% sure. Here comes John. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, how's this John Efferty. Good to see How are you. How you, John? Good, good. Yeah, I think uh, I think Dan Gingas may, may or may not have wrote a blog post about that United Airlines uh, 
video of some sort. No, my question to you, Jay, I mean, I've, I've read a little bit about your stuff. So I follow you not on Twitter until as of today. So uh, I think you. I have a lot more to learn. But m- my big question is around resolution. I know you guys spoke about, you know, transferring folks to email and having the issue of, you know, who is this individual, you know, regardless of maybe knowing their name and location and whatever Twitter bio information they might provide. Yeah. And obviously Facebook being limited in the effects of information you can collect on an individual it being a more closed network than something like a Twitter. But yeah, I would love to get your insight around, you know, even just suggestion. Like if you were a company of sorts, how are you ensuring that your customers are who they say they are? And then how are you trying to ensure that you can resolve their issue in the medium of their choice versus the, you know, more costly deflection to those traditional mediums over time? Yeah. Certainly anonymity is a challenge in some of those venues. I actually talked about that in the book by juxtaposing kind of what you see in Yelp versus what you'd see in G2 Crowd or Trustradius or some of the other review sites that rank and rate uh, software companies, SaaS companies, and and talked to both uh, marketing directors and, and looked at kind of the, the veracity of the reviews and how likely brands are to respond when they know it's an actual mm-hmm. customer, a verified customer. You raise a really good point. There's no question that that some portion of anonymous reviews are not accurate. They're, they're bogus. I mean, there's no, you know, even Yelp will tell you that it's probably 25%, 20%, something like that. So there's definitely a challenge there. I do not have a solution to that challenge. In terms of resolution, I think Moriarty raised a really great point that now that we're starting to see companion pieces, so Facebook Messenger allowing you to go private, Twitter allowing DMs without followbacks, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now you can actually do more in-channel resolution yeah. than, as opposed to say, hey, we're going to start this answer on Facebook, but you're going to have to call us or email us. And I talked about in the book that that happens a lot today. Totally. And it's so incredibly frustrating because what happens all the time, John, is somebody you know goes to Twitter, for example, and says, I'm having this problem. And they get a tweet back from the brand that says, okay, please call us at. And the next tweet is, dude, I called you the first time. That's why I had to tweet mm-hmm. you because there's a 48 minute yeah. hold time, right? And so you're bouncing somebody back to the channel that they already, they were frustrated. And now somebody's like volcano upset, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a really dangerous game to play. So the more that you can keep people inside the channel that they chose, the better off you'll be. And, and that's why I do think some of these abilities now that are rolling out to, to handle those things privately, but in the channel can be really advantageous in that scenario. Gotcha. Thanks. You know, another trend that I'm seeing that's a little disturbing is I think that a lot of companies are jumping too quickly on Twitter to the DM because yeah. they want they want the complaint offline immediately. And the and so when you look at their feed and you look at tweets and replies, everybody they answer everybody the same way. Please DM mm-hmm. us with your info. And the problem is is that they're not answering any question publicly, right? Nope. So they're not yeah. solving the problem for anybody else. And, and, you know, there are certainly uh, regulated industries, I've now worked in two of them, where it, it is required sometimes to take people offline. But, not but every by time. no means. People that, hide behind that, that every time. time. Yeah, that's exactly my point. Is I, and I think that so, is something that, uh, that we should be looking at. John, so thanks so much. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay. Do you have a follow-up question? Go ahead. I, I did. Well, I mean, it's mainly like, um, and again, I'll, I'll jump off. I won't, I won't, I won't take anything okay. over from here. But yeah, where, Jay, where do you draw the line? So I guess that comes to my next question around the reason I asked that is resolution is a really challenging thing within an unowned medium, right? Companies don't own Twitter or Facebook machines. They can't leverage it to pass like PII or things across it assorted, yeah. in an assorted fashion. But um, where do you draw the line between like just engagement and customer service then, right? So, you know, when is a company engaging? Not... Not that either needs to be devalued in any sense. I think responding to someone that's engaging with you, even if it's super positive, 
you need to do to you know educate them to come back and and who knows maybe your nps score goes up and all the good things continue to follow but do you draw a specific line between hey we're actually resolving a customer's issue versus we're just engaging with them because they've effectively engaged with us and we're going to have to push them elsewhere with the knowledge that resolution isn't possible here? Yeah, great question. So we actually did both of those questions in the research. So we both asked people, what is the NPS impact if you get an answer? And what is the NPS impact if you actually get a resolution? And what was really fascinating to me, I probably should have mentioned this earlier, is that yes, you get a higher boost in customer advocacy if the problem was resolved. But the difference between resolution and an answer is not significant. It's in the single digit percents. So so you get way more credit just for answering than you do extra credit for actually resolving it, which I think is a really fascinating scenario. Very interesting. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks, John. Appreciate it. All right. We have time for, I think, one more question. So if anybody wants to hop on, please hit the button. In the meantime, I'm going to do one more plug for your book. You want to hold it up again, Jay? Because I only yeah, have a piece I'll of hold paper. It up. Book is, uh, as I said, this is got the new book smell just a couple hours ago. Hug Your Haters, hugyourhaters.com. All kinds of special stuff at hugyourhaters.com that you can't get anywhere else. I will ship it to you for free in the US or Canada. And what's also cool, even though the book doesn't come out for like three weeks or whatever, if you get it at hugyourhaters.com, you get instant digital access to the book. So I'll email you a link. Uh, you can read the near final versions, a couple of changes, but the near final version instantly. So you can read it weeks before anybody else reads. And in fact, uh, we've had hundreds and hundreds of people do that already, which is really cool. So even though the book isn't out yet, a lot of people have already been able to read it and are talking about it. And that's, uh, that's awesome. Fantastic. Well, we really, really appreciate you. Yeah, right there. Moriarty already has it on his phone right there. There we he go. Has it. He's got <laughs> nice it. job. Well, Jay, this has been an awesome conversation. And what I love about this blab is that this is really, uh, you're encapsulating why Dan and I started this podcast. And if I can wax philosophical for just a moment on our 25th anniversary, it's our 25th episode silver anniversary. Thank you. That's exactly why we started this podcast was we knew this was important. We knew that some brands understood that and were getting it right. And a lot of brands are trying to get it right and trying to figure it out. And so we've had a lot of fun talking to different companies, all of whom have gone down this path in some way and are on this continued journey and are are trying to figure out the same questions that some of our audience members have asked, which is which is fantastic around, you know, what happens every time a new channel comes out? Do I have to jump on and now do service on that channel? So this is an evolving question. And I think your book does a really good job of encapsulating, you know, some of the key components that should work across all channels that, you know, answering everybody in every channel every time. I think not going down the rabbit hole and and engaging people only twice is fantastic advice. (laughs) So anyway, really appreciate you taking the time. Please, everybody go out and buy the book and buy seven of them so you can get a pair of socks. It's even better. Exactly. Thank you. Guys, thanks for having me on the show. Love the show. Big fan. Both of yours, uh, Genghis, thanks so much for uh, being so generous with your time and your insights and your wisdom. As mentioned earlier, uh, your thinking is is all over. Hug your haters and people who grab a copy will see uh, that you are you are one of the very stars of the book and deservedly so. So thanks so much for, for having me on the show and can't wait to see the next 25 episodes. Fantastic. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the first 25. And uh, we hope to see you for the next 25. Thanks again. 
Thanks for listening to the Focus on Customer Service podcast presented by Social Media Today. Be sure to tweet your thoughts and nominations for other brands to be featured using hashtag FOCS and follow Dan and Dan on Twitter at DGingas and at I am Dan Moriarty. See you next time.